You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. As we begin the fourth chapter this morning in this study uh, that has been, I hope for you, helpful uh, as you think about what the gospel is and what it means to believe. Uh, and then for believers in this room, I hope that it has been helpful for you uh, in sharing your faith. I hope that you have been uh, diligent in that, not just uh, hearing how to do it each week, but actually going and doing it uh, as you leave this place. And so we are praying for you. Um, as you share your faith that God would uh, give gospel fruit, and He does that in His timing. Amen? Uh, we know that it is our job to plant and to water, but it is ultimately God who gives the increase. And so you continue to be faithful, and God will bless uh, our faithfulness as we proclaim the gospel, and He will draw people to Himself. For that's the purpose of this book, isn't it? So the purpose of this gospel, that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in His name. It's the burden on our heart as we think about each and every person who comes to this place on a Sunday morning. As you come and you gather here, if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, know that we have been diligently praying for you, that God would convict your heart of your need for a Savior, that your sin would be made clear to you, reality of the separation from God that you are experiencing in your life, that you would, that you would know what it means to be broken and why that this life that we live is so broken now, and that you would cry out as a sinner before a holy God for mercy. It is our prayer for you each and every week. So we're praying for that this morning, that you would trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so I ask you again, as I asked you last week, Christian, are you really praying for that? Do you really believe with all of your heart that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe? And do you believe that God will use us as we are faithful in his mission? Is that your life mission? Is it your life goal to tell everyone that you can meet about Jesus Christ? Is there a hunger in you that the gospel be preached to all people? Is there a hunger in you that people really believe in Christ and come and profess Jesus as their Savior and then become baptized and grow in their faith? Is it really a hunger for you that people become worshipers? who connect in biblical community and who grow in their faith and multiply disciples both locally and globally? Is this really your heartbeat such that you pray earnestly for the salvation of the lost, that the name of Jesus Christ would increase, 
that His kingdom would, it would come and that His will would be done in all the earth even as it is done in heaven. Is there an urgency in that for you? To add to that question this week, I wonder, if that is your prayer and if that is truly your heart's desire, how far are you willing to go in order that it happens? A better question perhaps is, to what extent has God called you and called us to go? Because if He has called us to take the Gospel to the world, then we must be about that mission. If we really believe that Jesus is both Lord and Savior of our life, how far are you willing to go to make Jesus Known. I appreciate your prayers for Abby this week and all of your support for her. What an incredible experience it was over this weekend. And uh, there, there, much of what she experienced this weekend was a talent contest in, in all senses of the word. But what I shared with Abby before she went out on the platform multiple times is you have an incredible opportunity. You could sing in church the rest of your life, or you could sing for Jesus on a secular stage. And when you go out there, you may or may not be the best, but you will sing for you will sing your best for the glory of God. And I I just wonder, what is it that God is calling you to specifically that you might bring glory and honor to the name of Christ In a big way. I think that He's called us all to this as Christians. And I see it incredibly clearly in John chapter 4. And if you have found your place, I want to invite you to stand with me. As we give honor to the reading of God's Word in this incredible story. That perhaps there are treasures untold in for us as we think about gospel ministry. John chapter 4 In verse 1, the Bible says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and He had to pass through Samaria. So He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he went from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that as we come to this incredible story, only to begin to dig into the very surface of what we see, I pray, God, that you would awaken our hearts to the reality of lostness around us and that we would be so incredibly burdened to see that this good news through which we've been saved, the one who died for us and rose again, the the gospel message would be so 
It would be such a burden upon our hearts that we would take it not only to the places that we just happen upon, but that with great intentionality and urgency that we would desire and even obey you to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. God, it is our command, it is our mission to follow after you in these things. And so I pray that we would be burdened with that task this morning to do more than talk about it. But that with great urgency, we would desire that all the world might know that Jesus and Jesus alone saves. And Lord, if one of those people is in this room right now, or two or three, God, we pray that today you would save them. Because you are the one who alone can save. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So the very beginning of this story picks up where we left off last week and that that moment, remember, between these two kind of ministries, these two men who were both baptizing, the one who was the forerunner to Jesus, the forerunner to the Son of God, who had been having this ministry and baptizing people and people were following and repenting of their sins and just this amazing ministry And then Jesus comes along, the one that he preached about, and all of a sudden, all of these people begin to leave and and go away from the ministry of John to flock to Jesus. John's disciples are utterly confused and even maybe in some ways offended that they would leave John and all of a sudden go to Jesus. And John says, oh no, this completes my joy. My joy is now full. Even as much as the the friend of the bridegroom rejoices that the bride and the groom are now together once and for all, I rejoice in the fact that Jesus is increasing and I am decreasing And I said to you last week on the authority of God's word that it ought to be the greatest joy of the church that Jesus increase and that we decrease. Whatever is required that we lay down, whatever fame we might have to lose, whatever discomfort we might have to endure, whatever it takes for Jesus to increase both in the lives of our families and friends, in the lives of our church and in the lives of the world, whatever it takes We want to see Jesus' name famous all across the world. That in every heart He might be hallowed. That in every knee He might be bowed to. And that Jesus might be lifted up. Well, what begins to happen as they move away from this story is there's another geography change. They leave Judea for Galilee. It says that it happened in the sixth hour. The sixth hour is about noon if you're calculating based on the way the Bible records time. It was probably the hottest part of the day. Jesus is weary from his journey. He says, I've got to go through Samaria. And he gets to Samaria and he winds up at a place called Jacob's Well. Incredible thing about the well in the ancient uh, time in the first century is much like we have places of meeting today, uh, maybe that's Facebook or wherever it is for you, the well was a place of meeting. It, it was a place where people would go and they would get water for the day. And, and there, Jesus comes to Jacob's well and he meets this woman known as the Samaritan woman. And most of you are familiar with this story. 
And yet I'm afraid that even in our familiarity, we are tempted to just simply breeze through and assume meaning of the text. And I don't want to do that this morning or really for the next four weeks. One of the best things about the Gospel of John is the power of story. The stories in this Gospel tend to linger in our hearts. How many of you remember hearing the story of the woman at the well in Sunday school or growing up? Yeah, these stories, they tend to uh, just kind of hang in our hearts. And we remember hearing them. And with each stage of life change, I don't know about you, but what I find about these stories is they, they begin to gain deeper significance. And what I want us to do is to ask that question. What is the significance, not just of what's being taught, what the woman is experiencing, what Jesus is teaching, but what is, what is the significance of this moment in the greater narrative of what John is really trying to teach us? Certainly, there are things in this story that we've come to know and to love. The availability of forgiveness to anyone, anyone, even in the most unlikely of cases. Even through the most unexpected means. The nature of Christian worship. What does it look like to really worship the Lord? And how does that, how does that work in terms of place and posture and, and people? This story challenges us. And some of our most basic presuppositions. The things that we assume about the Christian faith. It challenges our social prejudices. It causes us to consider... What is the real nature of belief and commitment? And what does it look like to really believe the gospel? It should this morning, if you are a believer, it should inspire you to a certain evangelistic zeal for those who are far from God. We want to reach the most unreached. There are huge themes all throughout this story that have direct application to our lives. And it would be impossible to do justice to this story in just simply one week. So let's slow down and take our time. And so in doing that, there are four what I would call movements in this story. Four scenes, if you will. The first one being these first six verses, and they are natural divisions in the text. In fact, if you were to divide this into these four divisions, and these aren't in your notes this morning, but you might, you might call this a, a text about the world, about water, about worship, and about witness. Verses 1 through 6 being about the world, and 7 through 15 about water, and verse 16 through 26 about worship and 27 through 42 about witness. What we want to see this morning is just those first six verses. So what do I mean about the first six verses being about the world? What do we mean by world? Even before we get to the story itself, there is a curious phrase that if we're not careful, we'll just simply read over and move on and get to the content. It's found in verse 4, and you should highlight this this morning. It's all of verse 4. Here's what it says. And He, meaning Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. He had to. It was a necessity. 
Jesus found it necessary to go through Samaria. And the word that is used there is a word that is often used about Jesus implying necessity. And when Jesus moved and He, he acted and He spoke, he, he did so out of perhaps some, in some sense physical necessity. But what Jesus did is not following the, the whims of the culture, not following the desires of men. It wasn't thoughtless wandering. It wasn't happenstance. When Jesus acted and when Jesus uh, spoke and when Jesus responded to the culture, He was doing so at the command and in obedience to His heavenly Father. He followed divine will. Of course, this was His own will. But He made it a point to follow His Father, when He speaks of necessity, it is necessity according to the will of God. Jesus moved with purpose in all things. So somehow, this movement through Samaria was on the divine agenda. The question that we should ask as we come to the text is, why? Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? What was the purpose? As I mentioned, there are many important themes that are found within the encounter of Jesus and this Samaritan woman. And I think there is, if we're not careful, a tendency for us to move right past even the smallest of detail. But I believe that in verse 4 is wrapped up all of the intended message, the big meta-narrative picture of what John is teaching us in chapter 4. And it is a message that, considered, that causes us to consider the question that I asked at the beginning. How far are you willing to really go in order to follow Jesus and in order that the name of Jesus might be made known? So, what I want us to do this morning for the few minutes that we have is to consider that question. Why was it that Jesus had to go through Samaria? And I think that the answer to that question is significant. So, what we're going to do is structure our time this morning in a little bit different way. We're not going to find the answer to that question until the end. I want to take you on a journey through some possibilities of what the answer to that question could be. All of these things, I think, plausible, but not perhaps ultimate in what John is showing us. And all of them, things for your consideration and really in most ways for your obedience. Why is it that Jesus had to go through Samaria? Number one, perhaps the journey through Samaria was geographically necessary. Perhaps it was geographically necessary. Well, what do I mean by that? Verse 1, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although He Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and He had to pass through Samaria. The first thing that you should notice there is this 
tension between Jesus and the Pharisees that seems to be mounting. And, and it's no small tension. In fact, it will become quite entertaining as we move on toward the end of John. Uh, Jesus gets them pretty riled up and says some pretty potent things toward these Pharisees. And so it would seem perhaps that Jesus is already being run out of town by these religious leaders. The tension between Jesus and the Pharisees are is certainly mounting. And the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making more disciples. In other words, his his fame was growing, interest in Jesus was growing. And one of the things that the Pharisees were concerned about is there would be so much interest in Jesus that they would be removed from their position of influence in Israel. And so their their pride stood in the way. So so it's possible that the Pharisees had forced Jesus now at this point out of Judea. But what is certain is that Jesus is leaving Judea and has to go to Galilee wants to go to Galilee, and in going to Galilee, he actually has to pass through Samaria. That's what verse 3 into verse 4 says. As if it's on the way there. So, geography does help us a little bit here. Samaria was on a main ridge road between Judea and Galilee. And the road is known as the ancient, uh, the ancient way of the patriarchs, if you've ever heard of that. It's a famous uh, road, the, the, the most famous Jewish historian, Josephus, tells us that it took about three days to get from Galilee to Judea, or rather from Judea to Galilee. And so Jesus going down this road would have passed through Samaria. It's been speculated that the world uh, would not have received that journey very quickly and uh, or very well. In fact, uh, that most Jews, instead of choosing the quicker route, would have chosen to go a different route and skirt around uh, Samaria because of the hatred that Jews had for Samaritans. And, and there's likely some truth to that. Some Jews probably preferred to go the longer route because they hated another people so much. And yet, Josephus rejected that pattern of travel and tells us that most Jews, admittedly, even though there was hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, most of those Jews would still take the shorter route. They would just simply take time not to contact uh, these Samaritan people. The truth was, either route you took, you were either going to encounter Gentiles or you are going to encounter Samaritan people. And so you would be exposed to People who were not of the covenant. People who were not like us. There was a a hatred. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. So there is some merit to that answer. At, At a minimum, the geography means that Jesus is going to have to pass through a difficult area. A less than culturally accepted area. It would be necessary geographically in order for Him to go In obedience of the Father back to Galilee, He had to go through an area that maybe would not have been the first choice of a first century Jew. And I want you to hear this this morning. If you really believe that God has called you to make the Gospel known, it means that sometimes you, by nature of just simple mechanics, geography, that you're going to have to walk through some things in your life 
and some areas in your life that may be less than ideal. I was just having a conversation about this last night, talking about the place of of suffering in the life of the believer. And, And I think that we have this mistaken thought that if we do good things in this life, if we obey God in this life, that good things, comfortable things, happy things will come our way. And if we do bad things in this life, that bad things, uncomfortable, judgmental, persecution, whatever you want to say, will come your way. And so we need to do more good things than we do bad things so we'll have a happier, more comfortable life. Fact is, that idea is more consistent with karma than it is with Christianity. The reality is God brings these things into our life and it's fully His plan. And if you're really going to obey Christ in all that you do, there is necessity to walk through difficult things. Now, I think, unfortunately, sometimes we end up trying to avoid the very things that God has for our path and we miss the ultimate path or the ultimate plan that He has for us. And so it was geographically necessary. Certainly it is wise counsel for us to think Maybe to consider the, the culture that, was, that Jesus was walking into. But what if there is even more purpose than that? I think that's a valid answer as to the why. But maybe, maybe there's a second answer. Maybe the journey through Samaria was culturally necessary. Maybe it was culturally necessary. What exactly is the hang up with Samaria, you might ask? What's the big deal about Samaritan people? Well, the text tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. More specifically, Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar. Who are these Samaritans and why is the hatred so harsh from the Jews toward the Samaritans? And you might think this seems like a trivial question, but in our day, this is a particularly significant question. Especially as you think about all of the talks of racism and systemic racism and one people against another people and, and all of these inequalities in the world. Maybe this is an important text and maybe it informs us in some ways about what this looks like in our culture. Well, Samaria had no political existence in Jesus' day. They were just simply a part of Judea, and Judea was under the Roman Empire, but the Jews and the Samaritans did have a history. And you kind of see that come up in the story. If you read on to verse 9, the Bible says, the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman said to him, said to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Why do Jews have no or no dealings with Samaritans? Well, that history goes back to First Kings chapter sixteen, when King Omri. Anybody ever heard of King Omri? Anybody ever heard of King Ahab? Well, that's that's the son. Okay, so here's where we are in biblical text. First Kings chapter sixteen, after the Assyrians captured Samaria, seven twenty two B C. They deported many of the Israelites. This is uh, when King Omri would have been in place. They deported them. Many were allowed to stay just before this. Samaria would have been named the capital of the northern kingdom. So what Assyria does is they conquer the northern kingdom and they begin to settle the land with foreigners. Some of the Israelites are deported. 
Some of them are allowed to stay and, and this deportation and settling turns out to have this intermingling, this intermarriage between those who were Syrians and those who were Israelites. After the exile, the Jews begin to return to Jerusalem, but because of that intermarrying, they were seen as half-breeds. The Samaritans were no longer children of the covenant. They were no longer uh, people who were part of Israel. They were political half-breeds, racial half-breeds, and even religiously corrupt. Toward the end of the second century B.C., they even built a temple in a different place than Jerusalem. And the, the story goes that that temple was destroyed. And, and that's why there is this conversation later between Jesus and the woman at the well. There's a tension, a controversy between what worship is to look like and where they are to worship. All of that generated extreme hatred between these two peoples, mostly on the side of the Jews. The Samaritans were despised. The Jews' desire for a pure and loyal people of God, in fact, led Ezra to develop a segregation policy, maybe like some that we've seen here in America. And at various points, the antagonism between these two groups actually rose to the surface, perhaps like we've seen in the riots in our day. Stories like the Good Samaritan that we love would not have been taken well in the first century. It would have been a slap in the face, so to speak, that a Jew or that, that a Samaritan helped anybody. And so this message that Jesus is bringing, certainly a part of this message, is that the gospel that Jesus is preaching, listen to this carefully, transcends and crosses over ethnic boundaries. It is not a gospel that is any respecter of persons. It is not a, a gospel that saves only those who are white or only those who are black or only those who are Asian. It is not a gospel that saves only those who are rich or only those who are poor. It is not a gospel who saves only women or only men. It is not a gospel who saves only the morally upright or only the morally downcast. It is a gospel that can save anyone. This is certainly the message. As we read on in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, there is this division, this middle wall of separation between us and God. And I, I love this picture. First and foremost, what the Gospel has done in Ephesians 2 is it has removed the barrier between us and a holy God. Our sinfulness that separated us from Him. We were designed and, and created to know and love God, and yet we've, because of our sin, been separated from God. And what Jesus did in His cross is He took down that middle of wall of separation. He closed the gap between a sinner and a, and a holy God so that we might be reconciled to Him. But I love what Ephesians 2 goes on to talk about, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus... You or who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, near to God, right? Then verse 14, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God 
in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is why in Galatians chapter 3, Paul goes on to say that there is no in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The reality is, race is a non-issue in the kingdom. The reality is that that gender, even though we were created with unique roles and created in those purpose in that purpose, it doesn't change our value before God and it doesn't minimize those roles. It, It means that we can live in an equal opportunity society without equal outcomes because God has fashioned us and created us entirely different from one another and it doesn't change our value before the Lord. When Jesus came to the Samaritan woman, He crossed over and superseded all ethnic boundaries. Certainly that is a part of the message of the text. But is it, is it primary? I wonder if it's ultimate. And we need to be careful here. Because if we simply believe that about the text, we are prone to lean into a, a victim mentality or to misuse this text to talk about how Christians should be all about ra- racial reconciliation. And maybe we should be in a sense But what if the the story of the woman at the well has something even greater behind it that makes even race a non-issue? I think there's a third possible answer to that question. Why did Jesus have to go through Jerusalem, or rather through Samaria, to get to Galilee? Well, perhaps the journey through Samaria was providentially necessary. Perhaps it was providentially necessary. It says he had to pass through Samaria. And we know how the story goes on. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son. We know that there was this blessing and there was this well that was there from verse 6. So Jesus was wearied as he was from his journey. uh, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And you could assume just in reading that, that Jesus just happened to go through that, that particular city at that particular time. And this woman just happened to come to the well at that particular time for water and just happened to be open to the conversation. Or you could believe that somehow this was the providence of God. You could believe that this was an appointed moment. This town had been traditionally linked with Jacob. It, it was no uh, accident that this well was there, that, that this fruit of the vine near spring, we, we really believe we know where this well is particularly uh, even today. There's a suggestion in the Old Testament that the site could be close to Joseph's burial place. We don't know that for sure. But regardless, there's this well sitting there the place of encounter, the place of meeting. A deep well with spring-like water bubbling to the surface. And Jesus comes and meets this woman there. He intended this encounter. This was no accident. Irony is that wells are meeting places. And this woman had no idea what her day would hold. And yet she came face to face With the living Christ. What an amazing, what an amazing day. A day that she could never have planned. And yet, God had it planned from the beginning. 
Some of you this morning have never had that kind of an encounter with God. And God is providentially working in your life so that today you might come and encounter the living Christ. And when you come and you encounter Jesus, there is this There is this encounter and confrontation with the fact that we are sinners separated from Him. We've got to deal with the reality that all of us have turned away from God. That our lives are so utterly broken because of our own choices. It's nobody's fault that that we're in the mess that we're in. It's our fault. We sinned against God and we have to face that. But the reality is that this Christ, as we encounter Him, changes everything about our lives. To see the suffering Christ, to really encounter Jesus on the cross, dying in our place, and to do so personally, changes life. Because every sinful choice, every act of rebellion, every bit of wrath that abides upon me, Jesus takes, and not just for the the sins of the world as we see in John chapter 3, but that's my sin and your sin that Jesus suffered for on the cross. And when Jesus rose to life, it is as if I have encountered the risen Christ. I know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it's not just those people that saw Him that day. I have come to know and experience who this Jesus is. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus, you've come to know Jesus and encounter Him personally in your life. This is not some religion. This is not some set of of principles and rules Alone. (laughs) This is a person. And we must have an encounter with Him. And it is to confess the reality that in the midst of sin revealed and Savior crucified and Savior risen, that He alone can save. Some of you need to have that encounter in your life this morning. Some of you need to recognize that in the same way God was leading Jesus, He's leading you every day of your life. You're a believer this morning. And how many of us are guilty of when God providentially leads us down a certain path, we never even notice the woman at the well. We believe with all of our hearts God has called us to this and we rally for it and we preach it and we sing it and we celebrate it. But we've never participated in it. This is the call. It's the call in our life. God is providentially leading us every single day, every single moment laid out by God in order that we might have opportunities to share our faith in Jesus. I don't know about you, but I I sometimes weary. I weary of my own lack of obedience. I weary of my own excuses. I I, I grow weary of, of hearing Well, if the Lord gives us an opportunity this week, as if God's not already giving us opportunities this week, we just miss them. God is probably, what sense does it make that the God of heaven who commanded us to go and make disciples wouldn't give us an opportunity to make a disciple? What's, what kind of chaos is that? We have a loving Heavenly Father who gives good gifts to His children. And one of those gifts is the opportunity to speak on behalf of our Savior. Proclaim, proclaim His name. So maybe, maybe that moment with the woman at the well was the whole reason Jesus had to go to Samaria. And yet, 
And yet, she goes and tells. What if it's bigger? What if Jesus going through Samaria is bigger? I want to give you one more possibility that I think, I think if we're careful, just rises to the top. Answer number four. Maybe the journey through Samaria was missionally necessary. What if it was missionally necessary? And I don't simply mean that this woman might hear and that she might tell her friends and her friends might tell her friends. What if, what if Jesus is doing something here to show us the bigger plan of God for His redemption in the world? John's Gospel is the only Gospel, if you read carefully, John's Gospel is the only Gospel that doesn't contain the Great Commission. It doesn't. Or does it? If you begin in John chapter 2 and you read through John chapter 4, you will be reading what most commentators have been called the Cana cycle. Jesus began in Chapter 2, and there is this miracle of turning water into wine. We spent some time there, symbolic of many things, but namely his, his death. You continue reading, what you'll see is this symbolic death of turning water into wine. The temple cleansed in the middle of chapter 2. This new temple, he's talking about destroying the temple, raising it up again, really talking about his body. There is this picture of the resurrection there. Uh, in the end of chapter 2 into ver- uh, chapter 3, he talks about being born from above people and, and, and being born of God. Into that moment in John chapter 3, verse 14 through 21, he talks about loving the world. God so loving the world that He gave His only begotten Son. This is, right, the provision for being born from above and His Him being raised and Him dying for us. All of this leaning into, we must be born again. But from that, from that, Jesus continues to talk about chapter 3 through the beginning of chapter 4. That He comes from above. Remember, He must increase. We must decrease. He's the one who's come from heaven, John talks about. And then into chapter, into the story of the, of the woman at the well, there is this argument over the temple and where we should worship. We've already talked about the temple. And then again, He comes back to Cana and there's another miracle, the healing of the nobleman's son. This is what has traditionally been called the Cana cycle. It's a leading up to the main truth in John chapter 3 and and then a closing out so that we would see that this Gospel, Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, and people being born again all happens because God gave His only Son. And yet if you read carefully, you'll also see in this cycle that Jesus is moving the entire way through. Watch this. Chapter 2 and verse 1. He's in Galilee, essentially home base. Chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews, the Passover at the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to where? Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside and He remained there with them and was baptizing. Chapter 4, verse 3. He left Judea and departed for Galilee, and he again had to pass through Samaria. Do you see it? 
from home to Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and back to complete it. Acts 1.8 Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth and every step of the way calling people to believe. Nicodemus The woman at the well, every moment making disciples and consistent with John's purpose, John chapter 20 and verse 31, that they might know that he is the Christ and believe and believing have life. This is the message. That's not convincing enough. Look at the end of the story. The end of the story of the woman at the well is not where Jesus leaves the woman, but where he responds to the disciples. The disciples in verse 27 are marveling at him talking to this woman. They don't understand. Verse 31, they urge him saying, Rabbi, eat. They're concerned about his physical needs. And listen to how Jesus responds. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So that the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? What is the food? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. And then he begins to talk about the harvest. And what he's referring to is not the harvest of food, but ultimately the harvest of souls. This is missional. Jesus has just modeled for his disciples what it means for the gospel to be global. And then in Acts chapter 1, later as we read the narrative, he just simply says, go and do what I showed you to do. Continue proclaiming the gospel globally. So which of these is the right answer? I think that that answer is all of them. The final one, though, is ultimate. Such that if we're honest with what is happening, we will walk away with a convicting truth. God has given the gospel to the church with the clear call to take its news to the nations. That's true here in John chapter 4. It's true in Matthew 28. It's true in Mark 16. It's true in Acts chapter 1. It's true in Luke 24. It's true in every sense of the word. This is the call on our lives. And Jesus was showing us the entire time. In short, we have a global gospel. And that speaks to the way that you see your life, doesn't it? It's really the heart of every disciple to not only believe the gospel, but to see that others believe the gospel. Then it changes the decisions that we make in our life, the sacrifices that we make, the places that we live, the jobs that we decide to take. Oh, it may not be the job of a vocational missionary or a vocational pastor or vocational worship leader in that sense. Or it may not be a a full-time evangelist where we go around preaching from platforms. And yet it is the job of the entire church to make the gospel known to the nations. And for many of us, that will be in very 
big ways. And I wonder if we kind of set those aside thinking, no, that's not me. We pay people to do that. We, we, we see people called to do that and to be that. That's not what God is calling me to do and to be. And yet I wonder if many of us in many ways, in sacrificial ways, that God is in fact calling us to do this. What if, what if the Great Commission were to be accomplished in our lifetime? What if we really believed with all of our hearts? And I mean this. What would change about your life tomorrow morning if you believed that 80,000 people in Walton County needed to hear the Gospel tomorrow? What would change? There would be a lot of things that would change in my life. I'm just telling you. I'm just being honest, transparent with you this morning. There would be a lot of things that would change in my life. What if I believed that It wasn't enough for me to remain here, but that the gospel had to go to the ends of the earth. You see, I believe that the missionary calling based on the authority of this text is not reserved for the missionary, for the 4,700 IMB missionaries on the field, that the missionary calling is the life of every single believer that lives. And so, how do we respond? If the gospel is global, I want to call you to consider just four things briefly. Consider number one right now. Consider your life. How are you living missionally in the world where God has placed you? Right now, today. And that doesn't begin with an excuse or a reason not to. It begins with a real, honest reflection before the God who knows everything you do every day. How are you living missionally in the world where God has placed you? Neighbors, friends, co-workers. What is God's plan for you? Number two. Consider where God might be calling you to go into the world to proclaim the gospel. Again, we pay people to do that, right? No, we don't. We, we do this. There may be someone in this very room right now that God has been calling and leading and prompting to go and call people to believe outside of this community. You know God has been calling you. You know it's been laid upon your heart and today you need to obey Him. Consider where God might be calling you to go in the world to proclaim the Gospel. Number three. Consider... What things might prevent you from obeying that call? What are the excuses? What are the reasons? Why did you say no? What are those difficult things that you're going to have to sacrifice and put aside and make real radical moves in your life in order to actually obey what God has called you to do? Maybe it's just simply a reputation or the way that people see you. Or maybe it's your job even. Maybe it's your home. Maybe it's your entire livelihood. I I don't know what God is calling you to, but something will always stand in your way. And we must always make the decision, will we obey Christ or will we continue to make the excuse? Which leads to the fourth thing. Would you consider obeying God today? Whatever it is, would you consider obeying God in total surrender 
to advance the gospel personally and globally. Would you do this? Would you make it your life purpose to go to Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth that Jesus might increase even if it means everything about you decreases? You see, the the answering of that question, do we really believe it, is much harder when we hear it in those terms, isn't it? But I wonder if we've considered the road to the cross. Some of you are here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. You've never considered the crucified, cross, the crucified Christ. You've never considered... His suffering on your behalf. And today you need to trust in Christ. For you, for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, is just simply, it's got to get to the end of your heart and tear down every idol that's there. And you've got to surrender to Jesus right now today. You know that's you. God's been speaking to your heart. You're convicted of this reality, of your need for a Savior, and to be restored in right relationship with God. What are you waiting on? In just a few moments when we stand together, this altar is going to be open. Heads are going to be bowed. We're going to be singing. But you need to respond to the Lord. You need to obey Jesus. You need to step out of the place where you're at, repent of your sins, and follow Christ today and be saved. There's others of you in this room. You know God's calling you. And I want to invite you to come to this altar. And after you come to this altar and surrender to the Lord, and whatever that is, maybe that's something today you need to make public before God's people so that we can join with you and pray with you. And maybe somebody else in this room is struggling with the call in the same way. And today, God's going to use your obedience to be a testimony to them. I don't know what the case is. I don't know what God wants to do in your heart. I just know He gave me this message for you. And for me. And today, we need to obey Him. Would you stand with me all across the room as I pray? Dylan's going to come. And our invitation will begin. Lord, there is brokenness from the pew to the White House and everywhere in between. The only hope that we have is Christ. And it may not even be for the restoration of a nation, but certainly it is for a kingdom, for Christ. A people for Him. A bride prepared for our bridegroom. And we want to be that people. So I pray this morning, if there is one who's never trusted in Jesus... Call them even now. Draw them to Yourself, Holy Spirit. Bring them to their knees, to their face before a holy God and save their soul today. I pray for believers all across this room. Give us a burden. Give us a burden for the lost and help us to be faithful, to obey You and what You're calling us to today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar's open this morning. You come. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.